Thanks for coming. This is an absolute fantastic turnout. Uh, kind of curious though, how many people in the audience uh, either live downtown Chicago or in, in the city proper? Look at that. Look at that. How many work downtown and live downtown? About the same? Okay. The rest of you are, are working out in the suburbs? No. No? Living in the suburbs. Living in the suburbs. Okay. I found it interesting looking at the registrations that it really looked like about half or, or, or close to half of the people were signed up I wasn't familiar with. We weren't attending the luncheons, weren't attending the other programs. And so just based on that, I would characterize this as a, a stellar success. Uh, I want to make a point that we're planning on doing uh, more of uh, suburban type events. Uh, we don't currently have uh, any more of this particular uh, kind of genre of event uh, scheduled, but I, I suspect that the intention will be over the next uh, X number of months to be planning more and kind of put it into a, a program set like we have our luncheons so that it's more predictable and you're able to, to know when it is and put it on your calendar and just show up. Uh, but we're also looking at the, uh, um, I believe it's October, it's in October, I can't remember the date, October 18th. Uh, the, the local learning event, we're going to be doing a major learning event, a half-day learning event that will be um, <laughs> an end-user uh, downtown. Um, and then we're looking at, uh, we're considering strongly the potential of doing a, a video conference connection out in the suburbs. So we want to keep time in the suburbs uh, in more seamlessly than, than we have in the past because it's a, a huge constituency that we want to take care of. Um, <clears throat> the uh, program next month, oh, no, I'm sorry, I want to thank the sponsors that uh, we're up there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I want to thank the sponsors as always because the sponsors are, are really the, uh, the way we've been able to do this uh, so simply. Uh, we'll be starting the sponsorship drive again in uh, another uh, month or two. Uh, so uh, you know, be prepared to, to hear from, uh, uh, from Stephanie and the, uh, the sponsorship uh, team on that. Uh, our uh, July event, uh, which is the 12th of July, is, uh, is going to be a, a, a really a, a fantastic event. It's, about the, it's an Olympic event, the Olympic story, uh, about how we got it here in Chicago, and it will be uh, given to us by uh, David Roberts, uh, who is uh, with Jones Lang LaSalle, but he's on the Olympic Committee for uh, 2016, and he was on the Sydney Olympic Committee, as well as the uh, uh, responsible for the development of the uh, Olympic site. Uh, and then Bob Berwin, who is uh, a former Olympian from uh, 1984 and uh, Silver medalist in judo. judo. The highest uh, for, uh, medal the Americans have ever gotten in, uh, in judo, or remains today. Uh, he's also has his own company and suffers a printing company, a very large printing company. So he's gonna, the two of them are going to be able to speak very articulately to the, 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 the real estate, to the business, to all of the, the kind of exciting uh, athletic-related opportunities that are, are there. So it's going to be a great story. And then uh, uh, Bob Reed, uh, who was formerly uh, uh, crane, with Cranes with uh, uh, 780, uh, and he's a, a journalist in his own right, uh, and also an author, uh, will be uh, kind of working with them, facilitating the, uh, the conversation with the, the crowd. So you know, put that on your calendars. It's going to be a great event. Uh, and we look forward to uh, today's talk. Just for those of you who don't know, that's R.J. Breton. He's president of the Chicago chapter. Uh, my name is Brian Hayes. I'm the program chair for 2007 for the Chicago chapter of the Global. And I'd like to also add my welcome to the great turnout. We're very, very pleased with this for a first event. Uh, I'd like to introduce our topic today, which is uh, designing, developing, and constructing buildings from the ground up. And we have assembled a, a very veteran, experienced, and uh, a diverse panel who will take us from the Kind of concept through completion of getting a building built, something a little bit different uh, from what our other programs have typically been. Uh, we will focus, our theme will work around the idea of, of people, process, product, and pricing, all key elements in any successful project. Uh, you can take us in a lot of different ways. We've had some good, good conversations in preparation. I think this will be a great program. Uh, our, from the development side of the equation, we're pleased to welcome Pat Gallagher, Pat Senior Vice President with the Author Group, a 25-year veteran of the 
real estate industry. Pat's here in Chicago today, actually makes his permanent residence in Phoenix now, but uh, works on a national basis for the author group, so we're delighted to have Pat. John Hopkins is a 17-year industry veteran from HOK here in Chicago and has an award-winning background in interior design. We'll look to John for his insights kind of from inside the box as we, as we look at the big picture here. And I'll introduce our moderator, Mike Bain, is a vice president with Leopardo uh, Constructions Community Group. They're involved in municipal aviation, uh, religious and educational facilities. But in 20 plus years with, uh, or in the industry, has been involved in all product types and has uh, become a recognized leader in uh, alternative delivery systems, specifically design build as ways of putting teams together to, uh, to deliver the most successful projects. Mike is a graduate, a master's degree in architecture from University of Illinois. He has lucky's license in Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, also very active in trade associations, uh, published in trade journals, and has been a speaker at AIA events, uh, the Design Build Institute of America, and the American Society of Civil Engineers, among others. So we're delighted to have Mike leading our conversation. And with that, I will turn it over to Mike Payne. Well, thanks, Brian. That's uh it's always nice when someone introduces you because it sounds much more impressive than it should. So <laughs> I'm going to tell some people that have them call you up. But before we start in with the program and kind of go over what our agenda is today in a little bit more detail, I'd like to give it back to uh, to both Pat and John to give them a little, a couple, maybe a minute or so to talk a little bit more about what they do specifically, a little bit more of what their resume is and how they can they're going to add to the conversation today. So Pat, you want to just add a few. Few things about what you do? Well, based on your comments, I'd like to have you introduce me. It'd be more impressive. <laughs> um, my name is Pat Gallagher, and as, uh, as Brian mentioned, I'm a senior vice president with the Alter Group. I'm, I'm a Chicago native and active in commercial real estate here for the first 23 years, and now doing this national deal. As Brian mentioned, I do live in Phoenix, but I spend quite a bit of time in Chicago as well. And background-wise, I've done in Chicago suburbs somewhere well, probably in excess of a thousand acres of land that I've been involved with, with the acquisition, uh, entitlement, uh, zoning, and 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 ultimately the, the development of much of that land, both office and industrial. And then now my current role, uh, which I'll be able to share some ideas and thoughts, of what's going on around the country. I'm involved in, in development for Alter Group in, in multiple markets, specifically a lot in Southern California, Arizona, Indiana, and others. So it kind of give, give you a diverse idea of what's going on in some other areas as well. Uh, I'm John Hopkins. I'm a senior designer with HOK. I've been with HOK for 10 years, and uh, I'm proud to say that I'm the oldest person at our Chicago office. <laughs> Maybe not in age, but I've been there the longest. Our office has been open for tw 12 years. I was employee number six. I've got it tattooed on my forehead. And uh, we're now at uh, 92 employees, so it's been a great um, experience of growth to be there. Um, in my 10 years at HOK, we've had a lot of experience with Fortune 500 companies. Uh, focusing on corporate interiors for myself, I've done maybe about 90% of that. But given HOK's full service um, breadth around the country, around the globe, I've had opportunity to work in some science and technology projects, the Global Innovation Center for Wrigley, uh, for a good example, and uh, some educational spaces. So it's been a great experience to look at the corporate market and what are some of the changes going on there, and then to help some other, other clients and look at um, what's happening in other parts of the world. For example, right now we're working with a lot with Northwestern Memorial Hospital, doing some academic spaces for them, looking at faculty spaces. Uh, we were meeting yesterday and they're talking about how can we be more collaborative, more innovative between the faculty. Right now they're all boxed off into their own separate offices. So we're going to come to them next week with some examples of what's happening in the corporate world. So a good cross-fertilization. Great, and before we, we go into the agenda, I'd like to ask the audience, how many here are uh, end users? We're trying to get, a, get an idea, just, just a few. So everybody else is on the service provider side of the business. How many architects, engineers, interior designers, furniture people? So, okay, so we have a, we have a cross, uh, a group that kind of represents <laughs> different, different people here. Um, what our agenda today is building in the suburbs from the ground up in one hour to talk about that. I don't know how much we'd be able to do from start to finish and give you anything that would be concrete or useful. So we've been talking about this over the past several days of how could we uh, tailor this program so that it, it's valuable to you so we can look at a couple of um, 
relevant topics and maybe drill down on them a little bit and then see if there's value to drill down more or even take it to, you know, to another level at another time. Um, we want to do here is kind of a Donahue format. Uh, we want to be interactive. Uh, we have a question, a time for questions at the end, but really would welcome questions to be interactive, to debate, to, to challenge all of us of, you know, if you don't think we're saying something that's true for you, uh, let's hear it. Uh, ask the questions as we're going along and then we still reserve some time at the end. So if that's okay, what we, we've kind of drilled down on is looking at um, products and projects. This is like the P presentation, projects and products and process, and then pricing and people. And so we're kind of focusing on uh, maybe a major subject in either one, on, on all of those different topics. And maybe the best way to start it out, as we thought, is I'm going to uh, lob a pitch over to, to Pat and ask him what's going on in suburban Chicago right now from um, his perspective, from the corporate real estate perspective. We're seeing a lot of things in other markets. We're seeing a lot of mixed-use development, downtown redevelopment throughout the suburbs. We're seeing what the suburbs have, have changed, you know, defining the suburbs is different than it, than it was 20 years ago. Uh, we're seeing a lot of municipal work that really doesn't affect most of you in here. It's really changing what's going on in construction, but really what are we seeing in the corporate uh, real estate market and then what are the challenges that we're seeing right away, Pat? So maybe that's a good place to start. Well, for suburban Chicago, as, as mo most of you know, I mean, it continues to, to grow. It's just grown a little bit differently. Uh, probably one of the most uh, active products right now from our firm standpoint is the industrial side of the business, which has grown substantially, especially in the uh, uh, Bolingbrook uh, I-55, I-80 quarters, and just a phenomenal amount of that product being built. And we think that there's going to be a continued amount of that because Chicago is so key and critical to the international logistics business, and that, that's going to continue to expand and be a big part of the Chicago market. Office-wise, obviously the markets here have not been that strong. However, there is um, some new office development kicking off, and I think that there's going to be a continuation of that. When we're looking, we've got ourselves a couple of uh, large office projects uh, that we have teed up ready to go, and, and we uh, look at it every 30, 60 days or so and say, should we... Should we start looking at going speculative or not? By the way, I mean, I will tell you that some of the capital pension fund guys have approached us in the recent uh, months talking about uh, wanting to be a little bit ahead of the curve, maybe starting some new office development. So, so I think there's, I mean, from a trend, that's two things we're actively involved with. And then I think you're seeing, especially like right around O'Hare here, you're seeing a lot of redevelopment going on. Interesting to see some of the buildings. Uh, I think it was about five or six years ago, Elk Grove Village hired a consultant to come in and try to figure out what to do with all their aging inventory and stock of buildings here in the, in the uh, Elk Grove Village area. And now we're seeing a lot of redevelopment going on, tearing down buildings, infill. Uh, for those who raise their hands in their suburban, you know that, or even if you're a city coming out, I mean, the traffic issues are big, and as Chicago continues to expand and grow, you know, infill is becoming a lot more of a, com of a component, and uh, land values as a result of that uh, can, can back to focus on O'Hare, I mean, you're seeing land values for industrial sites going at over $20 a square foot. So, you know, that's all having an impact. And it also then affects uh, multiples of things, including where the opportunities are and how to deal with cities and how to deal with new issues, that being redevelopment issues versus converting cornfields to, to corporate buildings. One of the things we talked about over the past week was this concept of entitlements and what entitlements are doing to development, what they're doing or uh, delaying startups, how, how long it's taking to get jobs going, but also the additional costs, the additional things that we're seeing we have to do in these new projects. You know, and entitlements is kind of, they've always been a challenge, but, but in today's world where everything seems to be going faster and faster and faster, uh, and it's a very healthy corporate real, or commercial real estate market right now, so every time we go to, a, to buy a piece of land, it seems that the the time frame we have to get things done, the you know put the land under option, go get the entitlements, get get things done, has really shrunk. I mean, I it used to be almost automatically that any seller would at least give you 90 days to due diligence and then time to get entitlements and zoning and all those kinds of things. Today, buying land in many parts of the country, including here in Chicago, you're lucky to get a 30-day free look, and then they want you to go hard on money, and then they want you to go and close in 30 days. Um, so it's very aggressive, and at the same time that you've now got a much more shorter fuse on the land acquisition side of the business, the entitlements process has become that much more complicated. Every time you turn around, cities are coming up with new and exciting new ideas on how to control development and put more restrictions on it. 
And the days of getting straight zoning, which is from, an, from a developer's standpoint, obviously the ideal world is you just get a straight zoning classification and, and then you can build what you want to build when you want to build it as long as it fits within that zoning. Today, most all cities are trying to really put the, the, the uh, con controls on that with either PUDs or site plan approvals or whatever that makes you come back to the process. So even after you get the entitlements um, that you think you, you have, uh, you have to then, when you're ready to build, if you want to change any little thing, you got to go back, and it's a timely process. You know, government bodies need to be, so their fiduciary responsibility, go through process, and process takes time. And as the corporate people in the room here, as well as all the other brokers and such, know, I mean, our deals are always fast-paced. They, like, need to be done tomorrow. You know, that's, a, that's a interesting to bring that up because out in California right now, I got a million dollar problem on, uh, it wasn't on the paper, I don't think, but after the day, maybe it will be. Um, but um, I have a, we have a development out in, uh, right outside of LA and uh, we're just about to start construction and as we're getting a result of getting our final uh, civil engineering uh, approvals, the civil engineering uh, agency or the government uh, agency covering the civil engineering county um, changed the rules. I said, you know what, we want you to do this and this and this. There's a million dollar difference on a, on a project, uh, on a 600,000 square foot industrial building. What are you gonna do? Well, you know, the thing about cities and counties, they, I mean, they have competition in some regards regarding, obviously, when they're trying to recruit companies to come in. But when you, you know, the civil engineer won't give you a permit, you can't go to the next county over and say, could you give me the permit? <laughs> so, um, from a Cornet standpoint, um, you know, maybe it's an educational aspect, but but then again, it's education with the, the city officials and the county officials and, and that it is, and a lot of county and city officials do understand it's it's a mutual relationship. You know, they gotta help us and we have to help them. But in that particular example, uh, we did plead the case of like, hey, we're ready to start this project. We've got, you know, everything going. We bought the land, we got all, and the guy said, you know, ours is to maintain, it was a water quality issue in the state of California. This is for water quality in California. That's what our, our charge is, and you're the developer. You just gotta you know, suck it up. And um, so, you know, we now we now we're faced with a battle of like, well, do we go fight this battle, which is probably not a good chance of winning, uh, and pay probably over 100,000 a month and carrying our land, or we just gotta suck it up. That's the so we're we're breaking ground next week, and we're gonna have this fantastic water quality management system on our site for a million dollars. And whoever leases that building, you'll never see it. It's all underneath the ground, but it's there. John, but that's what, the challenge. What, yeah, can I, the, what can the A, oh, okay, go ahead. I, I wonder if there's any kind of educational arm that Coronet can develop. Maybe it's a, a set of um, speakers that are specialized in certain ways that can go out to do some outreach to these municipalities to say, you know, we, we appreciate what you're trying to do we'd like to share with you some experience and knowledge from the other side of the table, get more of a dialogue going so they understand what some of their, their directives, how they're impacting the development community. Yeah, I'll tell you, I think the, you know, the, the pendulum is swinging more towards them uh, wanting more from us than, than the old days when it'd be kind of like, yeah, go ahead, you can go do that. Um, it's because of all the bureaucratic issues, both state, you know, county, local, whatever, it's just getting more cumbersome across the board on entitlements. And, um, and the fact that in, the, in this case and out there, the guy who's making that decision is getting heavy pressure from the state water, uh, water quality board about improving their standards. And so his victory for him is to uh, push us to do more. Uh, he's gonna get the building built either way. He knows that I'm, I'm up against the wall, so he wins. How much of uh, that type of problem <laughs> is related to as you're going in the suburbs especially, that there's more and more people you're dealing with. You're not just dealing with 
a, one group in the city of Chicago or two or three, but you know who that, that group is. But now you're going to this municipality, this municipality, and all of a sudden you're developing in areas where maybe they aren't used to developing and this is brand new to them. Does that factor into this? Uh, most definitely. I, I did a deal in, uh, in Romeoville uh, about uh, eight years ago, I guess it was now. And, you know, it was still a, pretty much a farming community. Um, and the people on the board and stuff were very receptive to the type of development. Uh, and actually kind of going back to entitlements again, when I was doing that development, there was some talk about PUDs, some talk about kind of, if you will, kind of corralling the development. But uh, knowing that the personality of that community was going to change over the next five to ten years, we were very insistent on, on getting straight zoning, which we got. Because as the, as the communities develop, two things happen. First, you get more rooftops. More rooftops become people with different agendas than what the original founding fathers of the community might be. And hence, that means you're going to have maybe some change of personality, what the, what the goals and objectives of the community are. And, um, and then this, the, the markets change. So, um, and then also, you know, if you look at communities when they're new, um, they're encouraging, want, want, want uh, new growth. When you look at Schaumburg, Schaumburg was, uh, God, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, was very receptive. They really were looking for growth. Now, they've got it, and, now, but, but, and rightfully for them, I mean, they want to control what they're doing. So they're, they're a little more bureaucratic, a little more tougher to deal with than what they used to be 25 years ago. Kind of building off of RJ's question is, um, John, what, what can the AE community do to kind of help educate all these different clients out there? And also, what is it doing to your workload? How does it affect with what architects and engineers are doing to help developers make this stuff happen and make it happen quicker and identify these potential costs before they really happen? Well, we're finding that uh, the pre-designed services that we are uh, often responsible for are much um, more broad and they, the extent of the time is, is much larger in the process. So if you imagine 12 months from uh, when we win a project to when the client moves in, uh, where most of that is in design and construction, and now a lot of it is in the analysis, working with the developers and the brokers to understand some of the issues around where is the location going to be. As the suburbs are growing and growing, uh, clients are wanting to know, well, how is this affecting our commutes? Gas prices are getting higher. Uh, the focus on public transportation will, will continue to increase to be more important. So where is this building going to be located? As we're doing test fits for the client, understanding, say we've got six different buildings, we're doing some layouts to, to uh, see the efficiency of the floor plans in those buildings. They're on the wall. The focus is to talk about those, but we end up talking about, well, where is this site? How close is it to that highway? Where is it to this CTA station? What's the commute of these people from these different communities? So that's very important. Also, the idea of renovation of existing conditions rather than doing our test fits of just a building shell and laying out the interior, looking at what are the existing conditions, where are walls, where is plumbing. Uh, clients don't want to go in and just gut the entire floor. They understand that there's a lot of value in the mechanical systems that are already there, in the fire protection, in, in the walls, even though it's not terribly expensive to demolish walls and, and uh, rebuild them in other places. What are some of the existing conditions that will allow them to have a cheaper construction cost? One of the other things I wanted to explore is um, talking about, I think even in the program outline, it talked about doing work in suburban Cook and DuPage. And as we talked about the suburbs for years and years, those were the suburbs. And everything else was the collar counties. And I think we even mentioned it in the, in the program was the collar counties. What, what are the collar counties right now? Where, where is development going? Um, I, you know, we read, a few, we read a few a month ago or so that Will County is the third fastest growing county in the nation. Where is development going? Is, is Yorkville a, a suburb? Is it a boonies? What, where is Yorkville right now in that? And where, where is development going? I got to tell you, when I, when I was uh, looking at the uh, internet invitation for this event, uh, I double-clicked on it, and I think our, our marketing people had something to do with this, uh, the picture that popped up, and it was this guy standing in a wheat field with these mountains to the west. I'm like, how far west are we talking? <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, you know, the, another, another, here's a good example, too, where I think how you know, we're expanding, you know, and we've all grown, grew up in Chicago. You know, one time Merrill's Park was far out. Now it's granted very much in infill. I was out in uh, Morris, Illinois about a year ago, and I was telling the story at lunch yesterday, and, and I was sitting down with a, a farmer trying to buy his land, 
and his attorney, and we were talking about a pipeline that ran through the property. And I said, well, we were talking some issues. He says, well, the attorney handling for that, the attorney handling the pipeline issue is up in Chicago. Like he's where? He's up in Chicago. Well, for all of us Chicagoans, you know that if you're out here talking about an attorney, he's downtown. So he's downtown. And I would know that he's a downtown attorney. I knew then that I had maybe reached the edge. <laughs> or maybe beyond the edge. Yeah, maybe beyond. Um, but, um, and the other thing is, if you just when you fly into Chicago, you know, you, you fly over to DeKalb and stuff. I mean, DeKalb, all those areas that were so fringe, they're all becoming part of the, of the Chicago metro area. Histor and you look at LA or New York, the other big major cities that and have very similar characteristics, big bodies of water and you know populations, it continues to grow out. So um, I'm not suggesting that you get an Iowa real estate license if you're a broker yet, but you know it's it's going, it's getting out there pretty far. I, I would request of ourselves and, and everyone in the room to not be promoting these collar counties. To keep, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Nothing nothing against the collar counties at all. There's certain development that's needed, but. We also need farmland. We, we need to keep our development to a certain um, concentration. So why continue to pave over the landscape, I think, is a very important question. And that's a, that's a great segue into one of the other topics we wanted to go into. I'm trying to be conscious of our time here. But one of the things we talked about, and we felt that this could be a discussion all in itself, maybe two, three hours, maybe two, three days. But we wanted to explore the, this, this concept, this phenomenon out there that is green, sustainability, and lead and what's going on in the marketplace what's going on in the corporate marketplace we, we see what's happening in Chicago um, matter of fact I, I opened up a web page this morning well MSN and the first thing I saw there was the 10 greenest cities in America Chicago's four Mayor Daly's uh, trying to get Chicago to be number one what we're seeing what I'm seeing in the municipal market is that every municipality that I'm responding to these days has a green sustainable lead component to their RFP and RFQ. They may not know why they do, but they do. Okay, and we have to answer that, and we all have to answer it. And then the question is, how does this affect what's going on in the corporate real estate market? And really, what, what does it mean to you? And, and, and John, I'm gonna kind of toss that your way, because I know that you're doing a lot of work with sustainability, and maybe you can enlighten us a little bit on that. Well, I, I guess uh, i start off by asking everyone in the room, who's afraid of lead? and nobody's raising their hand, so that's a great thing. Um, LEED is a rating system. Some of you probably know more about this than others, so I'll give you a quick um, soundbite on it, but it's a rating system to understand how green a building is, how, how energy efficient it is, how sustainable it is for the future. Um, to uh, what this rating system does is it gives you a, a way to measure one building over another. The benefit of that is that humans are competitive, one person can say, my building is more green than yours and has this rating system to prove it. Um, if I say that I'm a fast runner, first question will be, well, what, what's your, what can you run, it, how fast can you run in a mile? So this way of, of being able to mark a building's uh, sustainable elements, I think, is important with the rating system. It's not a foolproof proof method. It's not the end-all, be-all. I think the sustainable... Um, uh, movement that's happening is in its infancy. It's very important to realize that this has just been happening for the last 10 years. We're all learning together. We need to keep together, keep cohesive. Uh, you think of the complexity of a project's team from the owner to the developer, the designers, the furniture providers, etc., the contractors, functioning as a team because decisions that are need to be made early need to be um, agreed upon and, and involve every team member so that's a does anybody out oh, go ahead very much so very much yeah, so I just last week I was in a meeting with a major fortune 500 company and uh, man they were talking things I'd never even heard about about lead I mean there was was you know but it was very clear that uh, the the uh, corporate edict was, this is going to be a green building, and that is that is clearly I think in the Fortune 500. If it's not in most corporations today, I think it's going to be. It's the politically correct thing. It's going to be across the board. Um, I don't know enough about lead to be dangerous, but I know that in the next 
you know, 60, 90 days. I need to really get up to speed on it. Well, we talked about this at lunch, and you know, and it's it's an ironic thing because it costs more to add to make your building green. It costs more money, and it's always been a d dilemma of developers. If we go this direction, <clears throat> will we get the value out? You know, will we get the extra premium and rent which we need just to cover the return? And the answer has always been in the past, no. So that's why we didn't really we haven't focused a lot on green. Going forward, okay, you're going to build a spec building. Let's say you're going to build a 150,000 square foot office building. Do you make it green so that if the right that Fortune 100, Fortune 500 tenant who who's mandated to go green comes to your building, do you I, then you're ready, you got it, you're there, fantastic. What if it's the uh, but then what about the 20,000 square foot regional company or whatever who doesn't really care about green? And now are they going to pay the premium and rent? And so it, it's a dilemma. I think it's like anything else. It's a it's a right now it's a bet. In the future it's going to become an obligation though because I think. And not only from corporate America, are they going to want the demand, hence we're going to just follow that lead. I think as we were talking also yesterday, I think the cities are going to become more and more conscious about demanding um, lead-orientated components of the development of their building. And I think that's going to become one of the building requirements in the future as we, as we migrate. From, from the municipal point of view, I'm, I'm working on a new police station in Aurora, big, big job. And it came out in the RFP, it's a lead goal. Okay, and if, I don't know, if, is everybody familiar with the different ratings of lead and what, I mean, there's lead certified bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. So right away, the, the, the city of Aurora, and I think, again, it's following the, the, the lead of Chicago, is saying, this is important to us. It's politically, it's important to us. To the mayor, it's politically important to him, whether it be a re-election item or whatever. And I think what we're going to see is as that continues, it's going to spill over in not just municipal buildings, but into, into all other structures, hospitals, structures, um, especially hospitals are trying to, and that's a hard structure to go into a sustain, sustainable design. But everything else you're going to see, I think, is going to go in this direction. So I think it's incumbent on you to, to really pick this up and understand it. And then we were bantering back and forth that the difference of understanding lead versus sustainability, because it's a big difference. I mean, lead is a point system. Really, it's very easy to get a LEED certified building. It's just really being smart to get a LEED certified, and it may not cost you anymore to get a LEED certified. But once you get a LEED certified, is the next person going to want a LEED bronze to outdo you? And then where does that cost start adding up? Where Because not everything costs. There's a lot of things in here where we're probably up halfway through a bronze rating before we're really starting to see some dollars being add to, added to this design. But it's a decision you're going to have to be, be looking at to say, okay, where, you know, the competitive nature of what I'm trying to put in here, where, where does it benefit me and where is it just costing money and then where is it helping the environment, all those things. So there's going to be a com political component to this. So and as a corporate end user, we can say bronze and not expect any kind of premium well, we, there's, there's no bronze level, so we need to, it's silver, gold, platinum. You want to buy that one? I like that. Anyway. <laughs> But if we, if we start to shift our thinking, which I think is very important, to not focus on what is tomorrow, what is our initial costs to this building, but what are we providing for the future? We all know that our, that our energy prices are continuing to go up. So if we're going to put in the cheapest mechanical system, um, all these things that are more about providing something cheaply right now, but we know that it'll take a lot more electricity, a lot more gas to heat or cool that building, Let's look at 10 years out. What have we spent energy-wise, um, the, 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 um, the factor increase versus if we would have provided a very more efficient system early on, saved a lot of money later on. So how to shift ourselves toward away from these initial costs? Yes, sir. You know, I'm pleased to say that uh, the Cornet Chicago chapter is a bio-regional partner of the uh, Green Build 2007 uh, November 7th through 9th. Uh, and so from that standpoint, we're you know, putting our two cents in to support the activity. Uh, but I have to say that the perception that a, a green, uh, a LEED certified building uh, costs more by its very nature is a tremendous misperception. It's, a, it's an old thought. The, the reality is, is that five years ago, seven years ago, I don't know if there was a 10 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, that the, uh, the costs were there. But the learning curve was huge in the uh, 
consultant community. There were a very few number of consultants available to do that. The, the contracting community didn't have a clue. Uh, they just looked at it, you gotta do all this other stuff that was different than the way we used to do it, it's gonna cost more. Now we have you know, over, over 5,000 certified uh, uh, projects throughout the United States. You have platinum uh, projects in Brownfield, even here in Chicago. Um, so what you're seeing is a tremendous reduction in that cost, and uh, GB, um, USGBC uh, current studies uh, show that the, the cost of, of doing a, a certified, and I don't, I don't recall what the level was, but the certified project has gone to uh, zero to maybe half a percent more. So the key is to not get stuck in the rating system and look at that as your philosophy but to buy into the philosophy of the way that the project should put together and, and do that from the beginning. If you look at it, you can tick off a point here, tick off a point there, you're already suggesting that you're gonna end up having to pay more because you can disconnect this part. It's like having a yeah. car and deciding, well, you know, I don't need that, that one pulley that's in there or that one belt, I don't need that, let's take that out. You know, maybe it did. You know, maybe that was what, the, you know, what uh, got you into the overdrive. So, it's the process that's, that's really important. Why are you having questions to Yeah, with the city. Yeah, there's a green permit process. Well, this is this is you can see it, it's a it's a passionate subject uh, for many people, <laughs> and uh, it it really it, I guess the point is why we wanted to talk about it is it's it's real, and and then then the, the part of the debate and I think I'm glad it's a good discussion because there is a real debate about understanding lead versus understanding sustainability and what you're trying to accomplish and I I think there's there's a lot of different avenues and reasons why people are looking at it, some are political mostly you got to look at cost with it because it's about first cost versus um, you know long-term and operating costs and energy efficiency and I think that while the other markets are seeing it immediately and maybe the corporate markets haven't seen it yet as much as the others you will be seeing it I think that's a fair statement no I think you know just a key thing just to cap on both of those things I think it's great that it's now it's on the forefront people will look at it and say okay it may cost more money to put in this mechanical system but long term it's a more efficient system and that's one of the things that I think is really great because as people understand that 
they will see and there will be credit given to the fact that you know this is a better long-term solution for the building and and the second thing is in Chicago is a good example of that is that you know is to make the uh, is to make the cities are going to start making a part of the process and they're, they're, that the cities are going to want I think that's also a good thing because that's going to kind of level the playing field I think everyone's going to be getting behind it or is getting behind it so it's going to become more of a cross the board kind of component now while Chicago is helping with the permitting process the suburbs aren't. <laughs> so, did you have a question? Yeah, I think it was um, more of a comment and building on RJ's thing. I was recently at an event where um, a, a professor, two professors from Harvard, spoke about this very subject. But um, with the business school, there's, they came out with a book called Green to Gold. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but people may want to try to find it. But I, what I thought was so interesting is they talked about this whole thing as a top-down um, business strategy. So it's not just affecting the real estate, but as you know, like you were saying, it's about economics. It, there's a, there's, who's the company that created the Prius? Is that General Motors or? Toyota. Pardon me? Toyota. Toyota. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I should have known. They're in the process of creating an automobile that will use one tank of gas to get from like New York to California. And when they can do that, and it's not too far away, that's a product differentiation. You know, that's what's going to move sure. their products and services. So when it starts there, and they need to do it, you know, so the consumers buy their products and get ahead of their competition, then it just comes top down, and I think we're going to see more of it in real estate as a result. That's how you have to look. The operating expenses component of it needs to drive it as well as the, well, the economics and the environment need to both drive it. So there's a question up here? Comment? So, no? Okay. Northbrook is in the process of what? Oh, they are. Okay. Great. It's great to see that. Um, we are running shorter on time, and I, we, I think there was at least one more subject we needed to address, and it's, it, uh, everybody is interested in it. And we've already just started talking about it as we talk about prices and costs. And what we wanted to talk about today a little bit, what, this doesn't necessarily have to do with the suburbs or the city. It really is what's going on with costs right now. What models do you use, and how do you know if what you're going in when you're starting, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent? And uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we were talking the other day is, is I think that one of the challenges, especially in the, in the, with developers and, and people building new buildings now, is a lot of times people are using old cost models. And old cost models, I mean, that's what they are. They're old cost models. Our traditional and conventional way of, of costing and pricing of buildings and budgeting buildings is out the window. It's gone. Um, I, I can't tell you how often I still hear people thinking that they can build, build a new building and not a show and core building, but even so, at, at $125 a square foot. Um, you still use, hear these unit costs being thrown out there, and I would caution all of you, don't use unit costs because if, if, unless you're throwing something very, very early just to put you in a ballpark because those, those costs have changed so much. And uh, one of the things, if you haven't seen this past week's engineering news record, it's all about what's going on with construction costs again, and inflation and getting ready for another round of con construction cost inflation and material inflation and steel and copper going up again. As a matter of fact, I had an email sent to me from our self-performed group yesterday that says here's the first increase coming right now. So as you start hearing about things that are leveling off and inflation is leveling off in the market, I tell people it's kind of like gas prices. We got close to $4, so now we're at 3.30 and everybody's happy. Right? We forgot about a buck and a quarter. We forgot about 89 cents a gallon. Well, at 3.30 probably is not going to stay there either. It's probably going to head back up a little bit too. And that's, that's what we're seeing in the, in, the, in the market right now. And I wanted to throw a question out to, to both of these gentlemen here. And one from the design side is, how is the design side dealing with costs um, right now? When you're starting out a project, how are you looking? When people are saying, hey, I need to know where this is coming in. And that's always been, you know, well, all three of us are architects, so I can say this. It's always been that, you know, on the architect, boy, you guys just don't have a handle on this. You know, and that's the biggest problem is I'm over budget, I'm over budget. So what do you do now yeah. when conventional wisdom is gone? Well, with corporate interiors, we're often given a construction budget early on in the process. So understanding what that number is 
how that number was developed, what the needs are from the client. Uh, oftentimes that number is appropriate, sometimes it's a little short. So working with the owner's representative to understand, to help them understand the marketplace and how things have changed. Five, ten years ago, maybe you could build out a typical suburban office space for $35. Now it needs to be 40 to $45. So again, as Mike's saying, don't use those old cost um, structures. We believe very strongly that it's important to get a general contractor on board, or at least as a consultant early on, so that as we're developing some concepts, even when it's early schematic ideas, that that contractor can put some cost models together so the client understands what the realities are. There's often a menu, almost um, like an a la carte menu that we, that we recommend. We know that your construction budget is fairly conservative. You're asking for a lot of things that we feel could be upgrades, could be things that go beyond that budget. So to put them in a menu so that in the, uh, the bidding process we can get numbers to those and say feature A, feature B, feature C, these are the cost to those. Here's your basic build out, but if you want the wood wall fronts to each of your offices, this is going to be that cost. Do you want the glass enclosed conference rooms? Here's the additional cost to that so that they feel like they can allocate their dollars appropriately. From my standpoint, uh, <clears throat> you know, doing this for a long time and uh, it was usually used, used to be pretty easy to sit down with the, you know, the old napkin theory and uh, kind of work out what you estimated a pro forma to be for an office building or a warehouse because generally things didn't change that much from, from a core and shell standpoint and, and uh, you had some moving targets as far as land and that, but pretty easy to do. Today it's it's a whole different world. I mean, you, you think you got a price and that's going to change uh, probably tomorrow or certainly 30 days from now you don't, you have no guarantees. It uh, becomes particularly challenging in build-to-suit deals because you're quoting deals. Corporate America wants you to lock and load, and that price can change uh, substantially on you bef between uh, the time you think you're making a deal and the, the time you're actually really ready to commit to the co to the contractor. But overall, I mean, and, and then also with this entitlement thing, you know, if you you're buying a piece of land, you're making commitments, you may be closed on the land, independent of the the million dollar hits because of a change of uh, strategy on the, on the city's part. But just the pure construction costs can move on you and and can have an effect. You know, we um, I was uh, saying I was looking at we were looking at an office building out in California recently, and it was a brand new building that we could have bought. And actually, we looked at it to buy the building. Uh, it was almost fully leased and it was new construction. It was two hundred and seventy five dollars a foot to buy this building. Well, so eight months later, I didn't buy it. J.P. Morgan bought it, but um, but uh, I'm now down the street looking at a piece of land that I was going to buy, five acre piece, going to build up a 150,000 square foot office building, and my pro forma cost because of the increase of construction prices that have been so uh, 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 big, especially in California, uh, is now over $300 a foot. That's for an empty. Well, that's for assuming I would have a fully leased building at $300 a foot, but I got to take the leasing risk to get there. To me, that says, well, geez, we should have just bought the only lease building down the street for 275, not taking any risk. Um, but it's, but the the costs are really, you know, in our warehouses, uh, I I've built almost identical buildings um, as far as square footage and footprint and same pieces of, you know, same park. And over a year, and a year and a half, those those shell and court and site and shell prices have gone up in some cases, you know, 10, 12, 15 percent. So it's, and it used to be, hey, you just kind of pencil it in. Well, you know, it's a 500,000 foot shell. It's an $18, $19 shell cost. And now it's like, nah, you have no idea. I think that's important is that the old models, and I was talking about the real old ones that you were saying you could use for years and years and they stayed the same. The same napkin. You just yeah, changed the yeah, title yeah, on it. Right. <laughs> that, it's, it's even the old model is the one that you did six months ago. That's an old model right now. This is a, a low-tech presentation, so I only have a copy. <laughs> it's suburban. Uh, engineers new, engineering news record, a cost pile up. There's the title of it right there. And if you go through it, I mean, the whole, this whole magazine is dedicated to cost estimators brace for more inflation, suggesting in here that we're looking as, as inflation has come down in, the, in the, um, the first and second quarter, maybe from 6% to 4% this year. They're talking about the last quarter of 2007, 2008, back up to 8% inflation in the construction market. And also, it's not just materials. Um, there's, a, there's a labor shortage. And what that's doing is giving the unions opportunities for leverage as they renegotiate their contracts. So you're seeing material costs go up, and you're seeing labor costs go up a lot. And the leverage, they have the leverage back. So um, 
please, when you're starting out the jobs, you know, look at this and, and say, boy, just because I did this six months ago, I can't do it the same way. I have to really look at it, look at every job by job what's going on because you may put yourself in a hole from the very, very beginning. And it's kind of hard to get out of that hole once you're in it. You know, which, by the way, just uh, let me kind of, you know, because the, the effect of all that, as we all know, is that increase your cost. You know, land costs are also going up, but just the, the fixed hard cost of replacement, which have been phenomenally increasing and, and, and projected to continue to do so. Assuming that in whatever market you are, office, industrial, or locale, that demand is good and you don't get overbuilt for some reason, the effect of that is one thing, and that's one thing only, that's increasing rent prices. And rents are going up. We've seen them go up in many markets across the country. And uh, if there is strong demand or good demand in any one and there needs to be new, new product going in, rents are going to go up. Uh, so from a corporate standpoint, corporate America standpoint, look forward to continued increasing rental prices. If you own real estate assets, um, you know, existing pro pro properties, expect the value of those to go up too, again, with the exception of a, of a supply and demand uh, imbalance. Because, you, you know, that example of my California building, I could have had that brand new building at 275 uh, foot uh, a year ago. Well, you know, I know that now I could sell it for over $300 a foot because the replacement cost is 300 So, you know, it's a, it's a, there's some really good news with that, and there's some bad news if you're the tenant paying the rent. That means you're going up. Yes. Can you follow up on that? We're representing the corporate end user perspective. To get inside the mind of the build-a-suit, design-build contractor as we go forward in this new pricing environment, how do you underwrite it? How do we do our deal with you? Are you willing to fix that rental rate at the contract time? Are we talking about at least constant kind of approach based on cost of the cap? Are you willing to cap costs? What kinds of things are we going to be talking about across the table? Well, those are all uh, obvious approaches. When you do, you can do a constant, run constant, you know, open book, constant against cost. Uh, but corporate America typically, at the end of the day, they want a guarantee. They got to take it back to their home office and say, hey, we got this deal done. We know it's done. And I think the, a year ago we were really having a challenge because nobody would commit to a price. General contractors would say, well, this is the price today. It's good for three days. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we also have Corporate America who says, here's the proposal. We need your answer back on this $40 million project in two weeks. Um, so it's, it, but at the end of the day, I think that everyone's become a little bit more comfortable. There's the, actually people are buffering into their deal escalations. I mean, we're seeing in our pro formas one and a half percent shell price increases every month and that kind of stuff are consistent with what Mike's saying. So I think the market, everyone's somewhat adjusted, both the, the, the developers, the contractors, the subcontractors, and, and I think the corporate America too probably has seen it enough too that we can tell them, hey, you know, we're, we're, we'll be able to lock at this point. Give us your commitment. We'll be able to then circle our contractors and everyone commits at the same time. And then we can still give them the, the guaranteed max that corporate America is really looking for. To build on that, I think, and I build on what, what John said earlier is, you know, I really like design build. I really like design CM. I think that more of this work has to be done with setting up this whole team, your whole team, early. And, and really changing the mindset of how you're going out and putting a design and construction team together. Because especially with prices so volatile, you need to know the answers. Also, from the other side, when we're being asked to guarantee numbers, we need to know the answers too. And the best way for us to know the answers from the build side is to be part of the process. And so you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent, always have been, of bringing on the entire team early. And what does that entire team mean? What is the ideal team? And it, it may include multiple people at, depending upon what you're doing. When you have a, a lead or sustainability component, you may need some other professionals that will help you with it. You need an AP professional, you need lead AP, you also need some commissioning professionals. Um, we talked about at lunch the other day with um, the idea of with this entitlements is you need to make sure you have the right civil guy, right site guy. Yeah, I mean, that's so important of setting up your right team. Um, what else, guys? What else would you add to that? Well, especially in entitlements, no matter where you are, um, suburban, downtown, or any, any place, I mean, there is generally every community has a team of civil engineers, attorneys, whatever, who have done a lot in the city and therefore have relationships with the right people within the city and understanding of, of how they work and so forth. So I think one of the key things we look to and we go into different uh, municipalities or counties and such is to, uh, you know, who, do, who, do, who are the right people that are that understand? And uh, like I did a deal in um, suburban Indiana or, out, or Indianapolis last year and I, I, we hired this attorney and we went to the zoning meeting and 
the guy was he was on for like two hours before it got to us. He was like every project was his. I mean, but he was the guy. You know, he knows everybody how it works. He knows the ordinances, and they all are comfortable with him. So getting that right person can make uh, make your process a lot easier. Uh, uh, right people on your team. Starting early is is also and letting letting the municipalities know early. I know that there's I've, we've done a lot of work in Lyle, and I'll go in before something is even really talked about seriously, and I'll talk with. Uh, with people in zoning, I'll talk with the fire department and say, we're thinking about doing this. You know, what do we need to do? And boy, they, they, after you do that a couple of times, then it kind of greases the skids for having things go a lot easier. So it used to be, you know, hold on to the information until we had to, hold, had to give it out. I, I would suggest it's just the opposite these days because of everything that's going on in the communities. You need to get that information out to the right people so you know what you're looking for and what it's going to cost you. Well, we're probably in our last five to ten minutes. Maybe just open up for any general questions at this point, if that's okay. Anything you want to add? Comments, questions, statements? Well, I. Right now, what we're going, we're going through this right now with Aurora. So it's a great, it's a great project where we're, we're really pursuing a goal and we're doing everything we can to pursue a goal. We're, we're finding, and I think this is consistent with what, what John has said, is that to get a certified and to get silver, we're not probably going to pay an awful lot. We'll probably pay nothing to get certified. We've, we have, uh, we've itemized like 14, nine points that will, we know will cost us nothing in lead, lead points. We've itemized 14 that we're pretty sure are already part of the design, but we're going to do them whether it's lead or not. So that we're saying that's going to cost us nothing. Although we were talking earlier, does it cost us nothing or not? The design is a little bit enhanced, but that's what they're going to do. So we're down to like 18 points that are going to get us between a silver and a, and a gold that have some cost impact um, all the way up to a geothermal system, which could be a huge cost impact. You still get only one point for it. You get the same for a geothermal as you get for a bike rack. Okay, so, so you have to be careful. Again, that's that whole lead point thing. But we're investigating it because it's, you know, we have to investigate. It's the right thing to do. And if I, you think about the life cycle costs. And the life cycle costs. And cost, put that into the formula. And then geothermal is a... In this case, it's probably not going to work because it's a 24-hour-a-day facility that has very few people in it. But we went through the exercise of saying, hey, do you want to spend this dollars for... A, life, a return of maybe it's a 50-year return on that system, where most, most of the time it may be a 7- to 10-year return on that system. But to answer your question directly, I think that we're seeing, there's a big study out there that talks, and most unfortunately it, it's done in California. Almost every building that's in the study is a California study. And they're suggesting that you're seeing anywhere from a zero on a, a certified, which I think is true, to a 3.5 to 6.5, 7% increase in cost all up to a platinum. Um, I think that we're looking on the building that I'm doing right now, which is about a 60 million plus project, is we're probably going to see a 5 to 6% increase in cost if we were going to go to all the enhanced mechanical systems. But we're finding ways to get the points in other ways that aren't necessarily costly. So I think you can be creative, creative design, environmental design, things that we should have been doing all along, as I think we've been saying that can help us get there. But certainly on a, on a certified building, I think it's pretty safe. It's not going to cost you very much, if anything, at all. Yes? Question more for Pat. In terms of construction costs, we do a lot of national center representation work, so I've seen construction costs in different markets. In markets where the residential market is, uh, has slowed down and really crashed, uh, from your experience, have you seen that be a benefit on the commercial side? Um, you know, the labor, that's a labor component, and maybe some of the other raw materials, too, that are not in so much in demand. I mean, all the plywood and woods and drywalls and such. But, but I, I haven't seen, the, I have not seen an offset. I mean, if you look in uh, Inland Empire, which is, was a booming residential market and has really hit the skids, um, I mean, our costs there are escalating probably as much, if not more, than other places around the country. So uh, I think the driver for the increased cost is uh, 
I mean, the labor shortages that you mentioned, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's happening many around the country, even in, in markets where there maybe the residential markets have fallen off more. Um, and the raw materials, well, steel, concrete, you mentioned gasoline. Well, obviously, oil prices have a big component on, on all so many different parts of what goes into a building from you know, the materials that go into your asphalt and your roof and your plastics and everything else, and not to mention transportation. So Phoenix is a good example. We, you know, we're very active in Phoenix. Our, our pricing there, um, we've got a $30 million project we just got priced, and uh, it was substantially more than the building, very similar building we just did last year, and that's a market that was probably the hottest housing market in the country and has really fallen off. Um, and uh, yeah, prices are still pushing stronger.